Well, tonight you will need a, a copy of the scriptures with you because I'm actually not going to be putting the scripture uh, up on the PowerPoint. So uh, if you didn't bring a copy, if you don't have one on your phone or iPad or a hard copy um, book, you will also have them in the pew rack there, and I encourage you to use that. I've actually found myself uh, sometimes making myself use my hard copy a little bit more because I realize how easy it is to get addicted to um, the digital media all the time and, and to try to wean myself off of that a little bit more and to, and to focus on the Word. Tonight, I'm not doing that so much to wean you off of digital media as I am um, to save time in making the PowerPoint um, full honesty, full disclosure. No, it just it gets, it gets to be a little bit much. But if you would turn in your Bibles to 1 Kings 17, that's where the story of Elijah is going to begin. It travels all the way to the end of 1 Kings and on into 2 Kings chapter 2. It's a lot of territory. Um, but I think we'll be able to benefit from it in the way we're going to tackle it tonight. So, Elijah's name means my God is Yahweh. And that's really significant because living in the northern ten tribes and ministering there where most people's God was Baal, it was, it was almost a way of saying my God is not Baal. My God is Yahweh, the true God. Elijah was called to serve as a prophet of Yahweh in the northern tribes who had given themselves over to idolatry, notably Baal and Ashtaroth, which was the female version of Baal. Elijah's life was a life, therefore, of holy war. Uh, God called him to courageous confrontation and conflict for the honor of Yahweh, the true God, over Baal, the false god. And as I thought about this, you know, as I was beginning uh, work on, on this for tonight, I, I was struck at what a difficult calling this is. Um, one of the things I hate doing most is having to confront. I can do it a little bit better from um, the pulpit when we're opening the Word of God. It's, it's really hard for me face-to-face, uh, -face. and yet that was precisely the way Elijah did most of his confrontation. Eyeball to eyeball, face to face, saying really hard things to people that needed to hear it, but people that could kill him on the spot. Amazing courage. You know, sometimes we worry, you know, we talk about praying that we'd be witnesses and we're nervous about talking to people we don't know that well or people that might not receive it well. I don't think any of us are worried that they're going to chop our heads off if... Object lessons are good. <laughs> yes. Um, chop our heads off uh, if, if we share the gospel with them. We really don't deal in our culture right now with that level of hostility, although there are many believers who do have to deal with it. So for us to kind of get into Elijah's times, we really do need to ask ourselves, why was Baal worship so appealing to so many people. And by the way, Baal just means Lord, okay? So you would have a Baal of this town and a Baal of that town um, because usually the idols were, were localized idols. But, but Baal in particular was very important 
Um, and in, in northern Israel, it, it had tremendous appeal. Number one, there was royal sanction of it. Jezebel was an avid Baal worshiper, and Ahab uh, became an avid worshiper as well, and they promoted it in the kingdom. This is top-down, like this is the religion of the empire. This is the religion of the country, and there were benefits to worshiping Baal uh, that would come from the leadership, and, and there were problems that would come if you didn't worship Baal. Furthermore, Baal worship had a long history. It had tradition behind it. It actually dated back to before Israel even entered the land. And one of the temptations, and, and the common thought was when you move into a new territory, if you want to prosper there, you need to worship the gods of that territory to which you've moved. And so it had that advantage. So Baal worship isn't some new thing. It's a very, very old thing. By the way, don't think that somehow if you find something that's an old form of worship, that that's necessarily better. It, it can be a very old and evil thing. So just finding out that it's old doesn't make it good. Further, there were relevant blessings. Baal was the god of storm and of fire and of fertility. So if you wanted a large family to work your fields and you wanted a plentiful harvest from the work that you did, then you needed to be worshiping Baal because he supposedly was the one that would bring all this fruitfulness and wealth and success and power. Further, sensual pleasure. There was a mix of worship and sexual immorality with cult prostitutes, so instead of denying yourself and things that would be sinful to indulge in, uh, Baal worship said, go ahead, indulge in them. It's good for you to do this. It's sacred for you to do this. Baal is pleased when you do this. And so there's this appetite-driven kind of, of worship that would appeal to the senses. And then finally, there is a deification of human desire in contrast to submission to God's holy law. Basically, Baal worship, you went through the ceremonies, but you got to live the way you wanted to live. As sinners by birth and by choice, we naturally choose the wrong way, and Baal worship was fine with that. Just worship Baal and then live like you want. So Baal worship was very appealing, and it had spread through much of northern Israel. And so this is the context in which Elijah is ministering. His life story begins in 1 Kings 17. In 17, 1 through 4, we're going to see the decree that famine is coming. 8 through 12, we see God provide food for Elijah in that famine. He does so with ravens at first. Ravens are unclean birds. Um, that doesn't mean that the food they brought was unclean, but it's, you don't expect... I mean, have any of you um, been fed by birds bringing your food? I mean, that's not usually the way that we do it. Um, and then unclean birds. And then, then God sends him to a Gentile widow, a widow that doesn't even live in Israel, that actually lives um, in the home country of Jezebel in the land of Tyre and Sidon, Zarephath. And, and here's a widow that's so poor that when Elijah meets her, she is gathering the last bit of food for her and her son, um, and then they're going to die. And God says, this widow's 
it's the famine, so you need to go to somebody's house where you can be sustained. So he sends him to a widow who is absolutely destitute of what she needs, and God nonetheless supplies. So here's the way the story goes. Let me read you some of the Scripture. I'm going to sample. This is why I'm going to do it tonight, sampling parts of this story. In 1 Kings 17, 1 through 4, we're introduced to Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe and Gilead, said to Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And the word of the Lord came to him, depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I, I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. Israel was on the, largely on the west side of the Jordan, and he was to go to the east side of the Jordan, and in this, this brook Cherith runs through a ravine. There's lots of great hiding places there, and God says, look, you hide out there. I'm going to feed you. The bird's going to bring you the food that you need. In verses 8 and 9, we read, after God had sustained him there, but the brook finally dried up, the word of the Lord came to him, arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. And so he, he goes, um, she's destitute, and Elijah says, look, feed me first, basically, and the Lord will take care of you. And that's what she does, and he promises that, that the, the meal that she put together uh, to make the cake and the oil that she used for that would never run out until the famine was over. And that's precisely what happened. It was enough food not only for her and her son, but also for Elijah. Well, while he was there, her son dies. Okay. At, at this point, she's being kind to Elijah, but there's no indication yet that she's a believer. She's living in a land that's even more idolatrous than Israel is. But Elijah's been sent there, and she comes to Elijah, and she says, look, I mean, like, has God killed my son so, so that he can punish me for my sins? Or what's going on here? What, what, did you, what are you doing to me? Okay. And so Elijah began to pray that the Lord would bring her son back to life. He stretched out himself on the son. He prayed over him. And we read in 1 Kings 17, 22, and the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah and the life of the child came into him again and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, see, your son lives and the woman said to Elijah, and here's the climax statement, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. It's an extraordinary turnaround. A nation who belonged to Yahweh had forsaken Yahweh for Baal. And a widow who lived in a land dedicated to Baal, Jezebel's homeland, came to trust in Yahweh. Elijah was sent beyond the borders of Israel to a Gentile woman living in a land of idols, just as the gospel of Messiah would one day go beyond the Jews to all ethnicities. When Jesus talked about this extraordinary action of the Lord, when he did so in his hometown 
synagogue of Nazareth. You know what his fellow kinsfolk did? They wanted to kill him. They, they, they were enraged, and they tried to throw him off the brow of a hill. It was not welcome news that God would actually extend grace to a Gentile woman living in an idolatrous land, but that's exactly what God did. And it's striking because Israel had rejected the Lord, so God sends the word of the Lord to this widow of Zarephath. In chapter 18, we see the promise of rain. God calls Elijah to go see Ahab again. In seeking him out, uh, he meets another faithful servant of the Lord named Obadiah, who is taking care of a hundred prophets of the Lord, um, taking care of them despite Jezebel's decree at great risk. Uh, even though he works for Ahab, he's actually working for God in that difficult context. Well, when Elijah confronts Ahab. Ahab greets him uh, as the troubler of Israel. And Elijah just flips it back and he says, no, you're the troubler of Israel because you've turned to idols. And then in 20 to 40 of chapter 18, we see this contest with the prophets of Baal. I mean, we could, actually, we could do a whole series on Elijah. You, you do understand this, right? Um, such a humorous story. Um, as the prophets of Baal try to get a God who doesn't exist to take action. And Elijah prays to God, having doused the whole offering many times with water, and fire comes from heaven, and they end up executing, as the law prescribed, the prophets of Baal on the spot. And right after that, God finally sends the rain. Here are some excerpts from the story. In 1 Kings 18, 1, after many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, the third year of the famine, saying, go, show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. And you do realize that Elijah is a hunted man. So he's saying, you know, go into the court of the man who's trying to kill you, of the king who's trying to find you, to kill you. Well, Verse 17, when Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have and your father's house because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Remember, Baal, you had different Baals for different towns. Now, therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. Well, in verse 37, here's Elijah's prayer, answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Of course, when you see that, all caps, L-O-R-D, you're looking at Yahweh. So they're saying, Yahweh, he is God. Yahweh, he is God. Well, after this big showdown and after the execution of all those prophets of Baal, uh, Elijah goes on the run. He's fearful and he's discouraged, according to 1 Kings 19. And in the second half of that chapter, we see uh, the Lord very tenderly encourage Elijah and call um, Elisha 
as one who would succeed Elijah in the future. 1 Kings 19.1, we read about it. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judas, who went all the way from the north, all the way to the south, into the southern tribes, and he left a servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, came and sat under a broom tree, and he asked that he might die, saying, it is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father. Sometimes we think that because God uses men and women in extraordinary ways, and we see them bold for God in very difficult circumstances, sometimes we think that their boldness and their courage is entirely just the way they're wired. And that's a huge mistake. Sometimes we think that they don't feel pain like the rest of people feel pain. And you say, well, why, why would Elijah be so discouraged after this amazing victory? Okay, here's this amazing victory. Here's fire that comes down from heaven. Everybody falls on their faces and says, Yahweh is the Lord. And the next day, the queen, and you kill all the prophets of Baal. And the next day, the queen still says, I'm putting a contract on your head, and you're going to be dead by tomorrow. In other words, it seemed like it didn't change a thing. Yeah, all these people say Yahweh is God, but I've still got a price on my head, and I might be dead by tomorrow. My, this, this, all this work, all this display of God's glory, it hasn't made a dent. It hasn't made a difference. What is the point? And, you know, I would just say that, okay, I'm going to, I'm just, this is just me talking, okay? But if I'm reading a commentary or listening to a preacher that beats up on Elijah after this, I usually shut the book. Like, you don't even get how human people are wired. And, there's not a person I've ever met who had to do what Elijah had to do. Elijah was subject to like passions like you and I are. It wasn't easy for him. It was very difficult. And, and despite the great victory, it looked like he hadn't gained anything. And so he's really down. Um, so how does God respond to Elijah? I think that's the important thing for us. Well, we're told that the angel of the Lord came to him once and said, you need to eat, uh, after he had slept a while. And then he came to him again in ver verse 7 of, of chapter 19. The angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. You see this, God's care for Elijah, even in the, the physical um, needs that he has. You go through a big crisis time where you have the kind of output you read about in chapter 18, it it sucks the energy out of you. And um, actually, I, I often refer to Monday as Roadkill Monday, and I've never done anything like what Elijah has done. Um, so he needed that, that physical rest. And by the way, you know, as God brings you through crisis and difficulty and calls you to minister, you need to be realistic about what it's doing to you. You are a physical human being, and you need to get adequate rest. You need to get adequate food. You need 
You need to take care of the machine that God has given to you to use for ministry. Well, after he had eaten, he makes this long journey. He comes to a cave, verse 9 of chapter 19, and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? I love, you know, Jesus did this a lot too. God asks questions. If you, if you want to open the heart of somebody, ask them questions instead of making declarations. A- ask questions. What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, throw down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Like, you know, all this work that we've done, it doesn't matter at all. I'm still on the hit list. And he says this, by the way, consistently. This is clearly what is, is bugging him. Well, there's a wind that breaks up the rocks. There's earthquake, and the Lord isn't in either of those. But after the earthquake came a fire, verse 12, and the Lord is not in the fire, and after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. The Lord was speaking to Elijah in a low whisper. Yes, God does bombastic things like fire from heaven. God does things where, where earthquakes come and storms and fire, but God also often works in the still, small voice in the private kinds of ways, and that's the way he talked to Elijah. And he restored Elijah to his sense of purpose. He assigned him several duties um, that would, would, would be uh, important, including um, anointing Elisha to also be a prophet, but he's also going to anoint some other kings that would bring judgment on Ahab's house. And we read in verses 17 and 18, the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. The one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet, and here's the great encouragement, you're not alone, Elijah. I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. We tend to get very fretful when it appears the enemies of God are winning. They're not. They're not. And because God often works behind the scenes in quiet ways, not spectacular ways, not in showmanship ways, at times he does that, but most of the time it's in the small, unseen things. A grand harvest, when it starts, is all underground. And that's the way God often works, and that was the way God was working even in Israel. I mean, it's extraordinary. Elijah, while he's on the front lines, still has people like Obadiah and and 7,000 others that are still serving the Lord in the middle of this idolatrous land where it's dangerous to serve the Lord. Well, chapter 20 isn't really about Elijah. It's about Ahab, and, and surprisingly, Ahab actually repents for a time, and God is um, favor, favorable toward that. But in 1 Kings 21, we see the theft and the murder of Naboth. Um, Ahab wants the vineyard that belongs to Naboth. Naboth says, I can't give you my inheritance. 
That's the way they did in Israel. Your inheritance is according to your family line. And um, so Jezebel worked out a way to bring false witnesses against Naboth, have him executed, and Ahab took the vineyard. Yahweh condemned him for it, and uh, you see actually Ahab repent for a time. And then in 1 Kings 1, after Ahab has died, there's a rebuke of his son, King Ahaziah. Um, Ahaziah has fallen through latticework. Uh, he wants to know whether he's going to die, but he sends to a false god, and Elijah intercepts uh, the messengers and tells him he is going to die. So he sends groups of 50 soldiers to arrest uh, Elijah, and they all end up literally toast. Uh, he takes care of them except for the last group where they finally treated him with some level of respect. Second Kings 2, Elijah is taken to heaven and Elisha is empowered to succeed him. So, in 1 Kings 21, verse 17, the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone to take possession. And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, Have you killed and also taken possession? And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, In the place where dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, shall dogs lick your own blood. And that's exactly what happens after Ahab is killed in battle. Um, in 2 Kings 1, the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, Arise, go to meet the messengers of the king, this is King Ahaziah, king of Samaria, and say to them, Is it because there's no God in Israel that you're going to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron? Now therefore, thus says the Lord, you shall not come down from the bed to which you've gone up, but you shall surely die. So Elijah went. Well, that didn't set well with the king, so he sends out these soldiers to arrest him. Verse 13, the third group finally is coming after the first two groups have been incinerated. Again, the king sent the captain of a third 50 with his 50, and the third captain of the 50 went up and came and fell on his knees before Elijah and entreated him, O man of God, please let my life and the life of these 50 servants of yours be precious in your sight. Behold, fire came down from heaven and consumed the two former captains of 50 men with their 50s. But now let my life be precious in your sight. Then the angel of the Lord said to Elijah, go down with him. Do not be afraid of him. So he arose and went down with him to the king. Well, finally, the time comes for Elijah to be finished with his ministry. And Elisha is alongside of him. And he says in verse 9 of 2 Kings 2, when they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, Ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. And Elisha said, Please let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. And he said, You have asked a hard thing. Yet, if you see me as I am being taken from you, it shall be so for you. And if you do not see me, it shall not be so. And as they still went on and talked, behold, the chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them, and Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. So his life uh, ended in an extraordinary way. Um, he was not because God took him. Now, that's the run through of the life. So it would actually have taken us longer to read through all those passages than what we just spent. But I want us to, to think about several principles that we learned. 
One of the main ones is this. Elijah's success and survival depended entirely on God's word and God's actions. It was God that gave him the words to speak, promises to make, and it was God who backed those promises with power. Think about it. I want to rehearse in your mind how this plays out. God sent Elijah to give God's word to Ab. We don't even know really, other than than coming from Tishbe, we don't really know anything about Elijah. He just shows up, okay? But God sent him to give God's word to Ahab. God sent the famine along with the promise of it before it even happened. God sent the ravens. God sent Elijah to the widow of Zarephath. God miraculously provided for her. God gave life to her dead son. During that contest with the prophets of Baal, it was God who sent the fire on the altar. God sent rain after three and a half years of drought. God encouraged his discouraged prophet. God selected Elisha. God sent fire and the soldiers sent to arrest Elijah. God took Elijah to heaven in a whirlwind in a fiery chariot. And after Elijah died... God destroyed Jezebel and the house of Ahab just as he had promised. It's a God thing. God gave him the word and God provided the power. It it was entirely uh, Elijah's life and, and ministry has no power, no significance apart from what God actually did. And so, you know, my God is Yahweh and for good reason. Now, not everyone is called to do what Elijah did. His was an extraordinary life, an extraordinary calling. For instance, Obadiah, that he met when he was supposed to tell Ahab that rain was going to come, was a faithful servant of God too, but his ministry was different. The life and ministry of the 7,000 who didn't bow the knee to Baal Their lives are different from Elijah's too. There are some similarities, but they weren't called to do the same thing. Elijah's life was largely dedicated to calling a nation to repentance. John the Baptist would come in the spirit and power of Elijah, just as Malachi had predicted, to call his generation to repentance as well. You and I do not have exactly the same calling as Elijah or as John the Baptist. They were unique in their setting in lots of ways. But if we belong to God through Christ, and if we're serving him, there are truths from Elijah's life that apply to our lives too. And I'm sure you could find more than this, but I came up with seven. Number one, Yahweh is the only true God, and he will allow no rivals period. Number two, God's power backs God's word, or you might put promises. I want you to think how powerful God's word is. God used words to create everything out of nothing, and his word still has that kind of power. Number three, God has everything and everybody in the universe at his disposal to bring about his purposes. Some of what he uses are natural things like drought and rain, 
Some are unexpected things like fire or ravens bringing food or a destitute widow providing sustenance or somebody you've never heard of before suddenly showing up, Elijah or an Obadiah who is serving in the king's court, even though the king is very wicked. God is at work in all kinds of places, in natural ways and in unexpected ways. Number four, God calls us to do hard things at times that require obedient courage. You know, it's not every day that you're called to do difficult things. But you are going to be called to do difficult things. You are going to be called to exercise courage if you're going to be obedient to the Lord. Number five, God understands our needs and cares for us. I mean, think about it. I just want you to think practically. So, say God tells you, okay, I want you to announce there's going to be a famine in Greenville for the next, who knows how long it's going to last, three and a half years. What's going to be a problem for you? How are you going to eat? Like you're in the middle of the land that's being struck with famine. Well, God takes care of that. God takes care of that. Um, when he's so discouraged that despite all that's been done, and despite the mighty display of God's power, that, that still Queen Jezebel has just as much power as before. Um, and he's now even continues to be on the hit list. God understands our needs, and he cares for us. God, God knew exactly what Elijah needed. If you think about what was Elijah's main complaint, he, he's basically saying, I'm no better than my father's. I might as well die. All, all that I'm doing is amounting to nothing. And, and essentially, God hears him out. And then God said, hey, I got more for you to do. You know, a person who thinks that what he's doing doesn't matter needs God to show him, I have more for you to do. And that's exactly what God does. And then God really multiplies his influence through Elisha and the prophets that follow. Number six, we are immortal till God is done with us. And then when he's done with us here, he takes us home to heaven. In other words, you can't lose. You can't lose. So this is a lot of what helps us with our courage. You know, yes, you'll have enemies. Yes, there'll be those and situations that, that can be harmful. But, but it can't do anything to you except what God designs for your life. And, and when finally God does take you out of the picture... He doesn't leave you in the dust of the earth. He brings you home to heaven. It probably won't be in a chariot of fire. But you'll get there nonetheless, and that's all that matters. To be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. I mean, just the coolest thing. You close your eyes here on earth, and you open them in heaven. That's, that's like the coolest thing ever. And then number seven, we too are entirely dependent on God's word and God's action for our survival and success. You know, one of the reasons God asks us to do hard things and asks us to go through difficult things is because when things aren't difficult, when things, we feel like we have control of the situation, we really don't realize how dependent we are on God. But the reality is that we're, we're all completely dependent on God. 
I mean, who kept you breathing last night when you were asleep? You weren't thinking about it. Who keeps your heart beating? I mean, even through the day, you're like, okay, beat now, beat now. Okay, beat now. If I don't beat, I'll die. You don't have to worry about that. God, God is our source of life. We're entirely dependent on Him. And we're dependent on His Word. We're counting on His Word to be absolutely true and powerful. And, and, and we are dependent on His action for our survival and our success. And, and for that reason, if, if we survive and if we succeed, we have reason to give praise to God, right? I mean, how many times do you get through the end of a week or end of a day and you say, I can't believe I even made it? Well, that, that's a reason to give praise to God. And as you enter a day, particularly days where you dread what you know is on the agenda, not to mention the things you don't know are coming, to be able to commit it to the Lord and say, Lord, I'm your servant and I'm dependent on you and I'm going to rely on you every step of the way. He's our good shepherd and he will provide us. So, I think that may be a record for how much we covered in one short time, but uh, I want to encourage you to spend a little time delving down into life of Elijah. I found myself, as I had finished up preparing, I thought, you know, we really should have done a series on Elijah. There's so much here uh, that's helpful, but I trust this will be something we can run with as we seek to make it clear to the world my God is Yahweh. Let's pray. The Lord, we, we are grateful we serve the true and living God, the one who holds our very breath, life breath in his hand, the one who controls the rise and fall of nations, the one who establishes the boundaries of their habitation, the one who gives life to all who dwell on the planet, the one who causes us to be born, causes us to die, the one who has sent his son to redeem us, that we might live forever as citizens of heaven. Oh God, may we serve you as the God of Elijah. May we be bold where we need to be bold. May we trust you. And Lord, may we know that as we go through the hard things that crush our spirits, that you understand very well what we're going through, and you know how to bind us up and make us strong again, for it's in Christ.